Welcome to Hemp Logic Radio, where we attempt to sift facts from opinions in this upside-down world of industrial hemp. Hey, hey, good morning. I'm Corey with Hemp Logic and my EFH, uh, my better half, uh, Beth Sharp. She's on the on the on the line with us. Good morning, Beth. Good morning. Good morning. How is everybody today? Uh, everybody's good. I know I'm good. Bill, you good? Good. Yes, we're good over here. Thank you. Okay, good. <laughs> just, a, just a quick, just a quick note, everyone. This is a live show. I don't do any any editing onto this. This is actually just where the program uh, Blog Talk Radio. Uh, it's a live program, so everything you hear is it's, everything's not edited. So, um, so today we've got uh, Bill Bullard. He is the uh, chief executive officer of RCAF USA. And uh, he's a, you know, uh, he's a cattleman uh, from way back. And uh, today we wanted to touch on, it's a very important topic, and it, and it falls into some of the things I've been talking about as far as our food chain. But it's a country of origin. And I don't know if, if everybody understands that there was some, some laws passed, and Bill will talk about these, I'm sure, uh, that they took away the, count, the country of origin. So when you buy meat, at your local store, um, you don't know exactly what country it's coming from. Is that is that right, Bill? Bill Bullard, uh, uh, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you, Corey. And yes, that's absolutely right. You want to? Can you can you give us a little history on this? I, I know that you know you, until you read about it. If you're not interested in it, you know it, I'm sure it just it's a boring topic. But can you give us a little history on this whole on this whole thing? Well, sure. Let's go back to the uh, early 90s when our country uh, fell into this globalization effort and we began to see that uh, our country was actually trying to encourage more imports of food from other countries. And for our industry, we began seeing increased volumes of imports that were being purchased cheaper in foreign countries, brought into the United States, and then sold to unsuspecting consumers as if it was a product of the United States of America. And the reason consumers believe that is because all beef, whether imported or produced domestically, is required to be marked with the USDA's safety seal. So there's a USDA safety sticker on all beef products, but that sticker does not denote origin. And consumers uh, would believe that it did and therefore, the multinational global meat packers uh, were making windfall profits by sourcing beef cheaper from these foreign countries and then selling, passing it off to unsuspecting consumers as if it were a domestic product. And, of course, it was, it was priced accordingly. So the meat packers were making windfall profits. So we got together back in the early 2000s with other farmers, uh, farmers of fruits and vegetables, nuts and peanuts, uh, even fishermen. And we worked as a coalition to pass in the U.S. Congress the mandatory country of origin labeling law, and it was passed in 2002. And that law required all chicken and beef and pork and goat meat and venison and lamb and fish and shellfish and all fresh fruits and vegetables and uh, peanuts and macadamia nuts and ginseng, all of those commodities were required by law 
to be labeled as to where they were grown or produced. And for all meat oh. products, they were, excuse me? I said, oh, I didn't know any oh, of Oh, okay. I didn't want to. Okay. So all meat products were required to be labeled as to where they were born, raised, and slaughtered. And the USA label was reserved exclusively for products that were exclusively born, raised, and slaughtered. So that was passed in 2002. And immediately the multinational meat packers came unglued and they regrouped. And they actually convinced Congress to delay the implementation of that law for the meat products for cattle and pork and chicken and lamb uh, until uh, for about seven years. And so it wasn't until 2009 that they actually implemented this for meat products. And it was only partially implemented because of the tremendous influence by these multinational meat packers. They did not want consumers to be able to distinguish meat that was exclusively produced by America's cattle farmers and ranchers from the meat that was imported, uh, produced from imported live cattle from Canada and Mexico, and then simply just slaughtered here in America. So they fought and won the opportunity to have a mixed country label. And so for a few years from 2009 to 2013, when consumers went to the grocery store, they'd see a label that said product of the United States, Mexico, and Canada. So they still couldn't choose to support America's farmers and ranchers, nor could they choose to buy beef produced under the most stringent health and safety standards in the world, and that's right here in America. And so we had these uh, mixed country labels for several years, but then the meat packers worked with Canada and Mexico, foreign countries that wanted to continue importing um, or exporting to the United States undifferentiated and cheaper beef, uh, those countries filed the complaint at the International Tribunal known, known as the World Trade Organization. And unsurprisingly, the World Trade Organization agreed with Canada and Mexico that the United States should not be distinguishing uh, products for food products for consumers. So they ruled against the United States, but the U.S. Department of Agriculture did something very good at that time. They rewrote the regulations uh, then, and they actually fully implemented COOL in May of 2013, because at that point, all beef sold in U.S. grocery stores was required to be labeled as to where it was born, raised, and slaughtered. And so beginning in May of 2013, consumers could choose to buy beef that was exclusively, exclusively produced right here in America. Well, then uh, the meat packers and the countries of Canada and Mexico pushed even harder at the World Trade Organization and said, that's even worse. Allowing consumers to know precisely where their meat came from uh, was not in their economic interest. So they convinced the World Trade Organization to is issue another ruling that essentially said that the cool law uh, discriminated against live animal imports from Canada and Mexico. And therefore, Congress either had to substantially change the law or they had to repeal it. Well, the meat packers are so powerful in Washington that Congress fell all over itself just to repeal the law. So in December of 2015, that's what happened. Congress repealed country of origin labeling, but only for beef and pork. So today, consumers can go to the grocery stores and still find chicken, lamb, and fruits and vegetables and nuts, 
all labeled with a sticker that says product of the United States, product of Chile, product of China, Taiwan, whatever country. Uh, and consumers can exercise choice in the grocery stores, but they can no longer know where their beef comes from. And to make matters worse, when the country of origin labeling law was repealed by Congress, it repealed a provision in the law that required these multinational meat packers and importers to retain the foreign label on foreign products all the way through retail sale, meaning all the way to consumers. That was repealed. And we reverted back to the pre-2002 era where the USDA, the US Department of Agriculture was actually facilitating more imports from more countries into the United States. And what they did was they treated the imported product as if it were American product as soon as it crossed US Customs and Border Protection. And the USDA is allowing today uh, meat packers to import meat from any one of the 20 countries we import from Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Mexico, Canada, Ireland. Uh, we import from about 20 countries. And that imported product is allowed to enter the United States in a box and then go through a U.S. processing plant, be unboxed, reboxed, and relabeled. And the old foreign label, say label country of origin of Uruguay, was thrown in the garbage and a new label that said product of the USA is attached. So the consumers are being terribly deceived right now in the grocery stores because some of the product that even bears a USA label is exclusively a foreign product. The only thing that's American is it's got some American plastic wrapped around it and American label. So our efforts right now are to restore country of origin labeling so consumers can choose under what country's food safety regime they want their beef and pork produced under, as well as to allow consumers to be able to choose the American economy by supporting our American farmers and ranchers. And the only way they can do that is if we fully restore country of origin labeling for beef and pork uh, so consumers can make that choice. And most also important from our perspective, as a representative of the cattle industry, these meat packers can um, currently import this or source their beef products and their cattle from these other foreign countries, bring it into the United States market and displace domestic production. And that's what's happening today. U.S. cattle farmers and ranchers marketplace has been displaced with undifferentiated, cheaper imports, and the American cattle and far farmer and rancher can't do a thing about it because once they sell their live animals, they have no control in the rest of the multi-segmented beef and pork supply chains. So we are fighting right now to restore mandatory country of origin labeling for beef and pork and for dairy products. We just added dairy products in a, in a campaign that we just kicked off yesterday. Uh, and that's a petition in which we need to get 100,000 signatures in 30 days to deliver to the president and to the White House so that he will take action along with Congress. And in, in just 24 hours, we kicked this campaign off yesterday morning at eight o'clock. In 24 hours, we had 20,000 signatures. So we're well wow. on our way to get wow. 100,000 signatures. Uh, 
And, and I, people can go right now to www.demandusabeef.com. It's www.demandusabeef.com, and they can sign the petition and help us restore mandatory country of origin labeling for beef, pork, and for dairy products so consumers can make uh, buying decisions based on who they want to support and what country they have the most confidence in in producing the safest, wholesomest, uh, and best beef and pork in the world, bar none. Well, it's, and I think, I think uh, you know, that's, that's a long that's a really long explanation and it's it's like okay um all right that's a lot to unpack but i don't think you know and just like i've been talking about the last three weeks about our food chain this is definitely a part of the food chain that people don't really understand when they go to the grocery store i just happen to you know uh, both beth and i grew up on you know been on farms so we kind of understand the the cattle raising part of it but when you go to the grocery store and you buy a steak and now, uh, you know, I saw the difference in changing of labels and I, I noticed that because I've been read, reading up on it, but the average c- consumer has no idea that that steak that they just bought could have come from Uruguay. Somewhere else. Yeah. You know, so um, I, I'm thinking, Bill, I, I'm actually thinking that this coronavirus might help your cause. Well, as a result of not being able to compete in our own marketplace, because we, have, we do not have mandatory country of origin labeling uh, as the law today, um, our industry has been shrinking and shrinking fast. We are the largest segment of American agriculture, the U.S. cattle industry. We have just over three-quarters of a million independent cattle producers scattered all across the United States. And they're the ones who raise the cattle. They, they breed their cows uh, to the bull or the bulls to the cows. And then they have a calf once a year. And then they raise that calf for about four to six months. And then it goes to the next segment of the live cattle supply chain. And it's essentially uh, producers who keep those animals as year-old animals. And then the animal goes into the third segment of the live cattle supply chain. And that's the feedlot segment where the animals are fed for about 120 days on a grain diet and they're brought to slaughter weight. And then the animal is sold to the meat packer to be harvested into a consumable beef product. And that takes about 15 to 18 months from the time that the animal is born until the animal is sold to the meat packer to be converted into a consumable beef product. So the supply chain that we have in our industry has been shrinking. Uh, we've lost hundreds of thousands of cattle producers just in half a lifetime. We've lost over half a million since 1980. And the trajectory continues to be downward. And then when I talked about the globalization effort of the 90s, essentially what our government has done is turned over the entire food system to these global companies. And these multinational corporations have shaped both the structural framework of the industry and the legal framework of the industry in order to maximize their shareholder profits without regard to the interests of our nation for food security and food safety. And so what we have done is we've skeletonized our system. 
we've allowed the Packers to eliminate all the small and mid-sized Packers, where today the four largest meat Packers control 85% of all cattle that are ready to be slaughtered uh, as fed animals. That's wow. a tremendous level of concentration, 85% controlled by four companies. That Two was of those gonna companies. Bring, I was going to... I was going to bring that up. I was going to bring that up because we, you know, raised, born and raised in Moses Lake. Uh, there was a, you know, a little small packing plant there in Moses Lake. You know, we had our auction house and the packing plant. And then there was one in Ellensburg, like an hour away. Well, both those right. places are gone. They've been gone, you know, so I'm sure the packing, when did, when did that start happening, Bill? When did the, when did the small packing plants and, and was that government, you know, was that government, did they push them out because the government, or was that pushed out just because of economics? Well, they were pushed out because um, the largest meat packers were supporting regulatory regimes that uh, that they could comply with, but it was very difficult for a small to mid-sized packer to meet, you know, the same costly requirements. And in fact, for many small and mid-sized uh, operations, the requirements were unnecessary for them. They were only necessary because these plants were getting so big. And so it was very difficult for these small to mid-sized packers to comply because they had to meet regulatory requirements that were designed by and for the largest meat packers. And, and that happened throughout the mid to late 80s and throughout the 90s. In fact, we call that period, and even USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, refers to that period as merger mania because that's when we allowed the industry to consolidate uh, and become so concentrated that you now have those four packers. And importantly, two of them are Brazilian-owned. Two of the nation's four largest meat packers, uh, one is owned by JBS, which is the world's largest meat packer, and the other has, is, uh, owns the controlling interest of our fourth largest meat packer, and that's the Marfrig meat packing company out of Brazil, which is the second largest global meat packer in the world. So we have we are now dependent uh, on an industry that has become skeletonized. It lacks resiliency. It lacks redundancy. It is highly centralized. Um, and if you close one plant or slow production in one plant, you will begin to back up the system. And that's what the COVID virus situation is showing us right now. The, these monolithic meat packers were incapable of responding to a closed meat packing plant or a slowed production system because their workers were becoming ill. If we had a disaggregated system, food system, that would be inherently more secure for the nation because a crisis in one area could simply be absorbed by another. But the way we are so highly concentrated today, we can't do that. And the meat packers in our industry are trying to vertically integrate the industry. And what that means is they're trying to kill competition throughout the live animal production chain. And they've done that already in the poultry and hog industries. They now control the entire industry from the time yep. of the egg in the, the case poultry. of chicken or the, the case of a, a piglet being born. They control that animal from the time it's born or hatched all the way through to the consumer. And they've eliminated competition and they've, they've wiped out, uh, in the case of the hog industry, 90% of all the hog producers in business 
just half a lifetime ago in 1980 are gone today. We wiped out 90% of them. And so what the meatpackers were doing when they were shaping this industry to their benefit, their economic benefit, they realized it was far easier to manage 68,000 hog farmers than it was to manage 664,000 hog farmers. And so now that they've controlled those industries, when they back up, unlike in the cattle industry, which is really the, the vertical integrator's last frontier where we still have independent producers, as our system backs up, we can hold cattle back as long as the producer has the financing available to continue feeding. You can hold the cattle back and wait out this blockage, uh, the bottleneck that's occurred in our packing structure. But for these vertically integrated systems in the hog and poultry industry, they can't do that. They're so highly concentrated. Uh, and now what we're hearing is reports that they're starting to kill pigs and chickens. Yes. Uh, because they yes. can't get them processed. That. I read that, that they're starting to kill pigs, that they can't, they have no home for them. And, and somebody, somebody, somebody put a, a post on one of my LinkedIn and, and he said, well, I, I, if I know this might not, this might not work, but is there any way I could get one of those hogs? And I, and I just, <laughs> I'm responding to the fact of no, because you're talking about truckload after truckload after truckload of hogs ready to be butchered. They can't stop what they're doing. I mean, even it, it would cost them more. They won't even let you do it because they're not going to let you on the farm, number one. And even if they were to give you the hog, there's no way to get that hog into your truck. Or, you know, everyone wants to, you know, that they want that, that, that bag of potatoes or that bag of uh, right, onions. Right. And, and But it's not that our food system is not set up that way. And well, that's right. It's, oh, it's frustrating. I get in fights with people all the time, especially the ones that uh-huh. think that, you know, well, the, the the solution is urban farming. You know, we've got to get, we've got to start planting gardens in the in the cities, and I, I that doesn't solve the eight hundred, the, the other eight million or billion people we have to feed. You know, right. uh, and I don't know. You know, it's it's in concept. You know, and it, it, you could say, you know, your the argument is is it's you know it's big ag and they're taking, you know, the profits over you know everything else, but. In reality, aren't we still feeding? We're still trying to feed 8 billion people throughout the world. Uh, Big Ag is, is, is still responsible for feeding a large portion of that. The small farmers can, you know, if you take our small little town, which, you know, it's, it's not small anymore, but when I, when I first moved there, it was uh, 8,000 8, people had its own meat packing plant. It had its own auction house. It had its own, you know, distribution of food products and, and uh, produce and whatnot. Now it's everything shifted, you know, uh, the biggest potato menu, you know, I think they're building another big potato place and it's, it's an hour and 20 minutes away. But it's, you know, we're talking, you know, truckloads of potatoes coming from three hours away will come to this point. Right, right. So, I don't so know until what the, the changes, is, Yeah, until the changes really began to manifest themselves in our industry back in the mid to late 80s and the 90s and then on through today, where we have simply pursued this goal of um, uh, efficiency and economies of scale thinking that we could feed the world on this basis. And that's where we made our mistake. 
because we didn't consider the fact that we needed to make sure that the industry was resilient and had redundancy and could withstand shocks. Instead, we let the meatpackers continue that argument that they are more efficient than anyone else. Well, the fact of the matter is, is the United States family farm system of agriculture that consisted of millions of farmers and had you know, hundreds of thousands of processing plants and distribution outlets. That was the most efficient and effective food system in the world, bar none. The family farm system of agriculture was the envy of the world. But, and no better model has ever been produced. But the multinational globalists believed they had a better model, and everybody bought into it. And that's why we have this skeletonized system today. And so we have far surpassed economies of scale. We have far surpassed efficiencies. What we've done now is created tremendous buying power in the part of these multinational corporations to control the entire industry. That's what's happened. We surpassed the economy of a scale that would have balanced the national security interests, the national food safety interests, and the interests of being able to respond uh, in the time of any type of a crisis. And now we're, we're dependent upon a system that is fundamentally broke. The market system is broken, and here's how we know that. And that is that since January 1 of 2015, cattle prices began to collapse. They collapsed further and faster than at any time in history. But retail beef prices continued to escalate. And in fact, they rose for another eight months and reached a historic high. Consumers were paying a his, an historic high price for beef eight months after cattle prices collapsed. And from that point forward, we saw cattle prices continue to collapse. In fact, for the past three years, from 2017 to today, we see a, a marked trend, downward trend in cattle prices and at the same time, we see a marked upward trend in consumer beef prices. So what's happening here is there's been a complete disconnect between the value of the cattle that the American farmer and rancher receives and the value of beef that consumers must pay if they want uh, beef. And this has created a situation where the meat packers have been earning record margins. In other words, they're making windfall profits off the back of the cattle producers on one end of the supply chain and the consumers on the other. And that is a fundamentally broken market. It's, uh, it's manifest market failure. And we've been trying to prevent the situation, the dire situation we're in today for the past 10 years. And in fact, in one year ago yesterday, April 23rd, 2019, we filed an historic class action antitrust lawsuit against each of the big four packers, Tyson, Cargill, JBS, and National Beef, and that's the one that Marfrig has a controlling interest in. We allege those four meat packers conspired. They violated the law by conspiring to artificially reduce prices paid to the American cattle farmers and ranchers while simultaneously inflating their own margins and profits. We allege they violated our U.S. antitrust laws. They violated our uh, 
Hackers and Stockyards Act that was passed by Congress specifically to protect the independent livestock producer from the market abuse and excesses of the highly concentrated meat packers. And we allege they violated the Commodity Exchange Act. So this is a historic case. And in this case, we allege that these packers have colluded in order to create the situation we're looking at now, a complete disconnect between the value of cattle. So we have producers today who have been trying to sell cattle for four weeks, but they have no one to buy their cattle. And these producers are unable to make their payments. So we're going to lose a lot more of the cattle producers, and we've already, we've already been witnessing a, uh, an alarming decline in the number of our farmers and ranchers. And this is actually falling right into the hands of the globalists who want to reduce the number of participants because it's smaller numbers are easier to manage. So we've yeah. got to reverse this. We've got to reverse it for America uh, because we cannot become dependent on foreign countries um, for our food products. We have to rebuild uh, our American food system. I, I, yeah, I totally, totally agree. Um, I, and it, it comes back to the local you know, it's going to come back to the local side, but you got to have you have to, you have to be able to get the uh, the restrictions, the the regulatory stuff backed off, so you can actually, you know, I think uh, somebody said it was you know at least a million, you know, the infrastructure to build out another slaughterhouse is is astronomical, you know, right. and, and it takes time. I don't know what's going to happen, Bill. I'm you know I'm I'm still I'm. Being a farmer, I'm concerned about our food supply, and definitely meat has uh, – there's a definite hole in, in our meat production and, and what you've just talked about with the, the, the labeling and then the, the farmer. I see it all the time. I'm, I'm on Twitter, and I'm, I'm connected with a couple farmers there, cattle guys, and they just – you know, dairy farmers, cattlemen, they're just dying. They're just dying, and you can, you can yep. see it, you know, even though it's just words. You can feel their anxiety and their, you know, one, one dairy farmer's dumping milk. Right. You know, and coming from a dairy farmer, I know what that feels like. Uh, You know. Yeah, Yeah, we actually did that ourselves. So, yeah, I know how that is too. It's terrible. So, So we can fix this. And when we first saw in the middle of March, when we first saw the reports of empty beef cases in grocery stores across America, um, our organization, RCAF USA, immediately built a web platform to connect consumers with those farmers and ranchers who do sell beef directly to the consumers, as well as to some of the small processing plants and butchers who can sell beef directly to consumers. So we set this and invited producers across the United States that if they sold uh, beef to producers to put their contact information on this platform. The only requirement we have on that is that they must uh, they must sell exclusively beef that is born, raised, and slaughtered in the United States. And so we put that out there, and then we did news releases through consumer groups in order to encourage consumers to come to that website, and they could do a search for the producers in their state that can sell beef directly to consumers. And right now we have over 300 producers from 40 states that are actually doing that, which is a higher number than we expected. We thought maybe we'd get 75 to 100, 
of producers on that list. So consumers can go right now to www.usabeef.org. That's usabeef.org. And they can do a search and find producers in that area, local producers, uh, who can provide beef. But as you said, that that does not solve the industry's problem. We did that to just try to help uh, get uh, help connect consumers to the wholesome beef product, um, and it's grown faster than what we thought. But the other thing we did is, is early in March, we sent a letter to the president and said, you need to work with these small to mid-sized packers that are currently uh, under state jurisdiction. They're inspected by the respective state uh, food safety systems. And right now, many of those state inspected plants are not allowed to sell beef across state lines. Uh, and of course, this helps those who control the marketplace who don't want competition is to mm-hmm. have a regulation that prevents smaller operations from expanding. This has gone on for decades. And so we've asked the president to streamline the process so the state inspected plants can immediately begin shipping beef into commerce across state lines to help alleviate the bottleneck that, uh, that is now clearly evident within the industry. And uh, there's efforts in Congress underway to do that. There's uh, what's called the Prime Act right now, trying to provide an opportunity for these smaller local processing plants and butchers to expand their operations to help alleviate the bottleneck in this system. And, th- and that's what we need to do. We need to create an environment that is conducive to attracting new entrants. Um, and obviously, this is a very profitable industry. You know, you've got some Tyson, Cargill, JBS, some of the most powerful corporations in the world um, are doing this because it's profitable. The problem is now we need to, to provide the opportunity for profits for the small to mid-sized operations so we can begin to rebuild the redundancy that we lack in our industry today. Yeah, man, this is a big I – I have a question while you were talking. So you were the um, – so the the I don't know what beef prices are today. I don't keep up on the on the actual beef price. What what? But there was a guy that tweeted last night. There was a bull that came through with an auction house there in Toppenish, and he goes, well, I have to start rethinking my uh, my cutting uh, steers this year because actually the bull made more money than the than the steer for slaughter. He was just he he just couldn't believe that that was actually happening. Um, yes. So. And I'm sure that doesn't make any sense at all to a cattle rancher, but um, when a cow, you know, let's, let's put a price per pound on a, on a steer going to slaughter and then, then translate that to a pound of hamburger. When you, when we say that, that the packers are inflating the cost to the consumers versus what they're paying, it's kind of like milk. And the only thing I can uh, actually can compare it to is milk because we used to put, sell milk by the hundred, by the hundred pounds. And then you put it, and by the time it got to the gallon of milk, which is you know eight 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 pounds, um, you know we should be making you know fifty sixty dollars a pound, but we were only making eight. So right. is that the, is that similar to what you know the cattle market is? And then of course then you yeah. can bring in the the outside stuff, you know the the the, the foreign mark, meat market. What what is it that you know what are we missing here? What what the farmer's getting and versus actually but what the consumer's paying. What's the disconnect there? 
So we've measured that in a number of ways. One way to measure that is the, the amount of the consumer beef dollar that the consumer pays for beef, how much of that goes back to the actual cattle producer. And back in the 90s, that was about 62 cents of every dollar a consumer purchased uh, or for beef. That 62 cents would go back to the actual American cattle farmer and rancher. Today, that is falling to about 42 cents. It's, it's at a historic low. And, and today, the beef prices are at historic highs. So right now, uh, consume the all-fresh beef value, that is um, taking a, a carcass and cutting it up into consumable beef products, the average price that the consumer pays for that is, is about $6 a pound. So if we go back to prior to when our lawsuit started about when we believe or when we alleged the Packers began engaging in unlawful activities to artificially depress prices, we go back to 2012, for example. And in that year, the difference between the cattle price and what consumers were paying was about $2.40 per pound. Um, and that, that was when cattle prices were still connected to the value of beef. Today, that difference uh, is about uh, $5.75 a pound. And so there's been a huge jump in retail beef prices and a collapse in U.S. cattle prices that has created this um, um, broken market system. And so um, right now a producer will – well, let me, let me address the issue of the, the bull bringing more than even a fed animal, <laughs> which is very, very odd, except for the <laughs> fact that – we have been dependent upon cheaper beef from Australia and New Zealand, for example. And that beef is a very low-quality grinding product, and we, we import it into the United States. And then we mix that product with the higher-quality trim derived from our uh, fed cattle, the animals that go through the feedlot and are fed grain. But this uh, lean, ex exceedingly lean meat that we're importing is essentially the same meat that we would be derived from cows and bulls. And farmers and ranchers will sell about 15 to 20% of their cows and bulls uh, simply because they, you know, they've exceeded their production lives uh, or they didn't have a calf that year. And that's about 15 or 20% of their annual income. And so those cows and bulls were competing directly with this cheaper product coming out of Australia and New Zealand and that was seriously depressing the price of cows and bulls in the United States. Well, now that we have this bottleneck in the system, and now that we have more consumers eating at home, they're eating a lot of ground beef. And so mm -hmm. there's a shortage of ground beef. And so that's why the cull cow price and the bull price have fine, has finally uh, brought those the value of those animals up above the cost of production. Oh. Producers have been essentially giving their cows and bulls away, and that's, that's 15 to 20% of their annual income. So they've been harmed for many, many years as a result of this undifferentiated, because when you buy the American, uh, when you buy the ground beef in the grocery store, you think, well, this must be an American product, when it's most likely Holy coming from shit. Australia, New Zealand. Okay. You that's just why mandatory country of origin labeling. You just blew my mind. Okay. 
I think that's of, of everything right there. You just explained a miss. It's like, why is this happening? And why is, you know, and, and now it makes sense. Like, okay, why is that bull getting more money than an actual fed steer? Now you, you just explain the, the meat price. And that, and that really, honestly, I mean, and that, and, and this is coming from a farmer. I never understood right. this part because it's, you know, I'm not a cattle rancher. So, can you imagine somebody that, you know, maybe has never been stepped foot on a farm and having this explained to them in a way that they can, it's like, okay, you just blew my mind. <laughs> well, and here's why, in fact, you're absolutely right. Uh, America's cattle farmers and ranchers know very little about this. And that's because when the multinational meat packers started taking control of, over the industry, they also began taking control of the trade associations that were supposed to be representing the producers' interests. And so the meat packers figured out that if they could essentially infiltrate all of the producer organizations like the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the National Pork Producers Council, the National Chicken Council, uh, the National Turkey Federation, right now the meat packers are seated on every one of those so-called producer organizations board and they're dictating the message that those organizations are sending on to producers and so this message of course benefits the meat packers and here's what they've said about this they've said imports do not hurt uh, american cattle farmers and ranchers in fact they say the imports actually um, help the farmer and rancher because they complement the, our production processes because we don't produce this lean quality product. We need to get it from Australia and New Zealand, and we sell most of that product to the fast food chains like McDonald's and Burger King that buy a lot of ground beef, mm -hmm. and uh, that gives us the market for our higher priced and higher quality trim. Well, that's absolutely baloney, and we saw that in 2015 when cattle prices collapsed, we saw our imports from Australia quadruple. They quadrupled from, uh, I think it was June of 2000, well, it was between 2014 and 15, uh, a fourfold increase in those imports, and that uh, helped to collapse cattle prices because there was a sudden surge, and this was lean product. This was product that the industry has been telling producers, oh, it doesn't compete against you, it complements you, when in fact the reality then showed producers, now wait a minute, the, the, this was a supply of beef that was a direct substitute to the supplies we have in the United States. And because it's considerably cheaper, it has driven down our prices. And so uh, you know, it's, producers, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm sitting, I'm sitting here thinking, all right, well, that doesn't make, it's total, I could just, you, you were, before you even said it was BS, I knew it was BS because if, if there was an actual market for lean cattle, whether it's bull or, or coal, coal uh, cows or anything like that, the, the, the meat part, the meat, you know, the farmer would actually adjust. Oh, you want, you want lean, you want, you want bulls? I'll raise bulls. Exactly. Uh, you know, I, you know, you're, exactly. you're asking for a specific product. I, I you know, I, I pride myself on giving you a nice, big, juicy, you know, uh, marbled steak. Oh, you don't want that? You want hamburger beef? Here's all day. But don't tell me that you're you're helping by importing from Australia and then, you know, crashing my price on my marbled beef. That doesn't that doesn't sit well. 
You know, Corey, and that's exactly why we have so few new entrants getting into we, we don't have very many aspiring farmers and ranchers around this country. It's because the industry has been so suppressed by the dominance of these global multinational processing companies uh, that we have farmers and ranchers telling their kids, don't, don't come back to the farmer ranch. Go to college and do something else. You don't want to be caught in this downtrending cycle that we're in. And the reason that, that, that that's occurring is because these multinational meat packers are, have established a system where they have now become dependent on this cheaper foreign beef. And so that limits the opportunities for aspiring farmers and ranchers. You know, we need more cattle. Uh, we, we can produce more beef. Beef demand has been growing. But what's happening is, is the multinational meat packers are sourcing more cattle and more beef from foreign countries and eliminating the economic opportunity for a new entrant to come in and start to strengthen our cattle industry. So we've caught ourselves in a catch-22 situation where the current model is absolutely dependent on imports because that's the way the packers want it and they don't want it to change, but that current model is why the average age of the American farmer and rancher is now up over 58 years of age. Um, we have a real problem because we have, we're going to lose. We have, a, we have a massive problem with that, and, I, you know, you can sit there and scream, and, you know, I'm an advocate of, you know, obviously, but it can tell people until it actually hurts them in the pocketbook or in our case, you know, in another 20 years, there's not going to be anybody growing anything except large corporations, which then control all the food and control the price. And then where do we, then are, where, where are we? And, you know, yeah, maybe it, this is just a, this is just maybe a, a, a human race life cycle thing that we have to deal with. I, I, I don't have an answer. There's not a well, the, program out there, you know, there's not a, how do you get into ranching? You don't, you, there's not a class you can take. There's not a trade school you can go to. This is something you're usually born and raised in. Right. And the COVID-19, as you said before, um, this COVID-19 crisis has literally shown a floodlight on the uh, deficiencies that, that, of our food system, and it will now cause America to rethink and to rebuild a food system that will work, that will withstand this kind of a crisis. Uh, and that's where this presents opportunities to reshape those, the legal framework that our industry functions within uh, and to reshape the structure of the marketplace uh, to, meet the, to meet the future needs of America. Because this virus, uh, we have been concerned about a virus in the cattle industry for many, many years. It's called foot and mouth disease. It's the most contagious disease known to cloven-footed animals. That means an animal with two toes, like cattle, hogs, deer, sheep. Um, and it doesn't uh, differentiate or discriminate against wildlife. So that disease is rampant the world over. Very few continents are, are uh, free of that disease. The United States, North America is free, Australia is free. South America, that disease is endemic, and it is highly contagious, more contagious perhaps than the COVID-19 because it can float uh, by the wind for miles. It can be transferred by the meat product. In fact, in 1929, 
a, an Argentinian cruise ship docked in Los Angeles, California, and in the garbage uh, was uh, and the hogs was the virus, and it uh, there was an outbreak. It was the last outbreak of foot and mouth disease in the United States. It occurred in 1929. The United States spent millions of dollars depopulating wildlife and cattle in the area to, to stop and eliminate. So we have always had a ban on importing uh, beef from countries where foot and mouth disease occurred because it's devastating to, to the cattle industry. And that included Argentina, Brazil, China, uh, Russia. Uh, most of the world has this uh, pernicious disease. Well, it, in concert with their efforts to facilitate more imports, our U.S. Department of Agriculture has been systematically relaxing our health and safety uh, restrictions, and they're actually encouraging imports from countries where this disease is known to be endemic, including Brazil, including Argentina. Uh, Uruguay has had tremendous problems with this, and now we're putting our U.S. cattle industry at risk because we have relaxed the protections to prevent this foreign animal disease from entering the United States. And to make matters worse, uh, in their infinite wisdom, Congress decided to move a level four biosecurity laboratory that has been off the coast of New York and Plum Island for decades. And there they do research on very contagious diseases like foot and mouth disease. But because it's an island, Plum Island, if an outbreak occurs and it has there, the, the virus simply goes off over the Atlantic Ocean. Well, they have now decided to move that facility into the heart of the beef country, where 75, approximately 75% of our beef production is done because that's where uh, the multinational meat packers have centralized and where approximately 80% of all of our cattle feeding is done. In Manhattan, Kansas, they are now going to bring the live foot and mouth disease virus and conduct research on it right in the middle of America. And nothing could be more risky uh, than that kind of a venture. So our industry has been concerned that we could have had and could still have an outbreak of foot and mouth disease that would be more contagious for our cattle than the COVID-19 virus is presently for humans. That's scary and that's stupid uh, for the United States Congress to have approved that. And we're hopeful that this, because the USDA said, well, we're confident we can control it if it ever broke out. Well, the COVID-19 shows that whatever level of confidence you had, it was absolutely incorrect. Uh, it was in, we were incapable. We were ill-prepared to address this COVID-19, just as we are ill-prepared to address an outbreak of foot and mouth disease. It's it, it, when you bring in when you bring in actual farming problems into a room and and you being uh you know you're kind of into the politics now of it you get into a room full of politicians and they just look at you with that it, they're thinking about how they can just get you to go away they're not they're not here to listen to you because they don't understand what you're saying and then you have you know people write checks and you know, bankrolling their their reelection campaigns and whatnot. It's a tough you know, politics is just really gross. I don't like it. I, uh, I tend to like. I tend. It, it's a double edged sword. I enjoy it, but I also am not very good at it because I'm a black and white guy. And politics is uh, you flip back and forth. You know, uh, 
There he is. We dropped him. See, this is why I have a co-host. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Bill went away. Oh, he dropped it. Oh, dropped. No. Well, anyway, I I didn't understand the the beef thing where uh where the bulls and the the cold cows and and the dairy cows and those kind of things went to um went to hamburger. I I mean I guess I did understand it, but I didn't understand there was a whole market place for that. I I didn't understand that either. I mean um, yeah. well um I don't Hold know. Hold on just that, a second. Whole... Corey, am I back on? Yes, you are, sir. We, uh, okay. I was just telling Beth, I said, I, this is why I needed a co-host. Uh, there was a couple episodes I did where I was uh, a good three minutes of dead air, and I was talking to myself, and I said, I need a co-host. I need somebody to bounce some <laughs> stuff off of, and then you dropped off, and I'm like, this is why we have a co-host. Yeah, <laughs> we, I'm not sure what happened, but I was. Yeah, you just, it just, uh, you just dropped. You just dropped. Huh. Um so Beth was saying, you know, we were talking about the hamburger issue and whatnot. Um, just how that was, that was a interesting one of the, for me, it was the interesting part about it is even though I knew that, that that went to hamburger, I didn't understand. Uh, I, I guess I understood that, you know, some of that, like the, the, the bulls and the dairy cattle went into ground beef and then they just made up the rest with scraps and, and whatnot. But really it's an actual industry that, uh, oh, yeah. there's a certain grade of cattle that just is, is hamburger. But that was when I, you know, I was younger, so I really haven't really right. thought about it, I guess. Well, well um, Corey, you were talking about how challenging, that's a nice way to put it, it is to try to convince Congress to do what's good for America. And, of course, we've been at this for 20 years, and much of what we've asked for has fallen on deaf ears. Every once in a while, we are able to break through. And the reason we were able to break through is because we had a, a, um, a widespread support from consumers. So that's, we're trying to replicate that now with our country of origin labeling campaign because consumers understand this issue. They know they want to be able to choose where their food comes from. And if we can get them mobilized uh, all together on a petition with 100,000 consumers, we bring that to Congress and they will listen. Uh, the president will listen. So that's the strategy. We realize we can't go up against these multinational corporations who have teams of lobbyists um, who, who have essentially won the day for many, many years. Uh, things can turn around if we can mobilize citizens, and that's what this campaign is, effort is underway. And that's why we have a number of reforms for the cattle industry and I haven't brought any of those up during this discussion other than, you know, the, the historic lawsuit we filed to enforce our antitrust laws because we need to do something monumental as a first step and restoring the ability of consumers to choose where they buy their food and restoring the, the ability of, of the American cattle producers uh, to compete in their own marketplace is a first huge step. And that's why we're pushing so hard on that right now. And I think that can help us overcome the, uh, the impenetrable wall built by these globalized multinational corporations and their teams of lobbyists. I think you're, you're I mean, I said it in the beginning was I think this COVID-19 is going to help you in your, your, your organization push these, 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 these uh, topics because the, the market is definitely going to be 
upended. Uh, prices are going to skyrocket, and everybody's going to be pointing the finger on why. And then that's yep. when you step in and go, this is exactly why. And you're going to be able to get some, you're going to, you know, you're going to grab these people and they're going to be, hey, 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 why are you grabbing my ear? Because I want you to listen to me. And this is what we need to do to change this. And it's going to take another 20 years of change and not allowing them back to importing these, you know, uh, lesser grade meats in produce. And it doesn't matter. Our whole food chain, they're importing cheaper products and cutting out American, you know, jobs and, and farmers. So, um, yep. hey, Bill, you got I've got the Demand USA Beef. Is that dot com? Yeah. Or is that a Demand USA Beef dot com? And the other okay. one is. And I've already uh, signed a petition. Wonderful. <laughs> Demand Circulated USA Beef far and com. wide. Is there another like... one you said? Yes. The other one is to connect consumers to producers who can sell beef directly to them and even yeah. to small processors. And that's What's the that www.usabeef.org. So one is demandusabeef.com. The other one is usabeef.org. I saw, I saw a guy on Facebook that he was a buffalo producer in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And he was frantically trying to, he was saying, look, I, I got to sell 20 buffalo a month to stay viable, all of my restaurants haven't ordered anything. And I need to sell, in order to keep this thing going, I have to sell 20 Buffalo a month. And that was my, you know, that was my restaurant orders. So he's going through the same backlog. He's used to pushing out 20 20 Buffalo. Well, all of a sudden that chain stopped. So now he's backed up. You know, it's, it's so, and, and I, I just bring that up because it's the same thing as what we're talking about. But usabeef.org, if you're, if you want to order beef, you can go to that website and, and purchase beef, right? Yep, they can, they can connect with an actual producer. So all the negotiation would be between the consumer and the producer. We just provided the platform where they can meet each other. Ooh, I really like that. I'm going to have to check that out. I, I think that's, uh, I know I have a lot of friends on, you know, social media and they, you know, we, some of them grow their own and some of them, you know, uh, they, they go in, you know, three of them will go in on a cow and one of them will raise it and then they have a, you know, uh, but this gives me, you know, I got to check that out because that might be an option to, uh, to do that. Absolutely. We're running, we're, we've got a couple, we got a couple minutes left. Um, Bill, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and, uh, you know, and you've been on for an hour now, and, and I just really appreciate everything that you're doing, and I, I wholeheartedly support you, and um, it's, it's been great having you on. You're definitely a, you're definitely a cowboy. <laughs> well, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having us. No, no we appreciate no having problem. you on our side. Bill, you still there? Yes. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I'll make sure I put all these links into the, into the podcast and into anything that I do to promote this. Um, if you have okay. any other, you know, if you need, you need me to get anything more information out, just, uh, you know how to get a hold of me and I'll do my best. Well, thank you very much. Sure. Appreciate it. No problem, Bill. You have a good one. Okay. You too. Thank you. Bye, Corey. You're welcome, sir. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That was Bill Bullard. Uh, he was the he's the chief chief executive officer of RCAF USA. There's a couple of uh, domains that I'll be posting up on here. Um, well, what do you think, Beth? 
Uh, you know, very interesting, very informative. I learned a lot, and I'm sure everybody out there is going to learn a lot as well. The podcasts are interesting. And they need to sign is... the petition. <laughs> they need to sign the petitions. Um, podcasts are interesting, i got to tell you. we got seven seconds left. We are flaming out just graciously. Have a great day, and I'll talk at you soon. Thanks.